0: Well, good morning, everyone. Bonjour tout le monde, bienvenue. Welcome online and in person to Concordia University's Fourth Space. Thank you so much for joining us for our research and conversation in the Faculty of Arts and Science. To help get you situated, we are streaming to YouTube live from Fourth Space, which is located on unseed indigenous lands here in Géorgueil, Montreal. And we'd like to extend our gratitude to the Cunyanka Haga Nation, who are the caretakers for the lands and waters we're meeting on today for their teachings about the earth and our relations. If you're new to 4th Space, welcome once again, online or in person. We work with our university community here in order to mobilize and exchange knowledge by creating daily ways and formats for us to be able to do so. Podcast conversations such as today's roundtables, workshops, hackathons, etc. We're so very pleased to welcome back Associate Dean of Research Patrick LaRue into 4th Space and his special guest, Claudine Gauthier here this morning as they embark on a conversation about Claudine's work, Impact of Aging and Lifestyle on the Brain. We're so excited. We've got to such a packed day that I'm gonna pass the floor to Patrick now, welcome.
1: Thank you, Anna. This is great. Thanks for having us yet again. Um, we've been meeting with researchers in the Faculty of Arts and Science uh, over the course of the year. And today we actually have three uh, three colleagues coming in. Uh, Claudine Gauthier, Associate Professor of Physics, uh, who I'll start my conversation with, uh, followed by Tianming Zhang, an an assistant professor, sorry, in chemistry and biochemistry. And finally, Marek Majowski, an assistant professor in chemistry and biochemistry as well. So it's a day of science. Um, I'm not necessarily in my comfort zone, which is is actually pretty exciting. Um, uh, I mean, literature, obviously, and and, uh, performing arts. And I haven't really um, done or thought about uh, Chemistry, Physics, Biology, uh, since 1987.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so, so this is, uh, nothing's changed, right, since the 80s? No. Right. Uh, it's truly it's really a pleasure uh, having you here today. Um, we've had exchanges over the past, uh, past while on, on various topics, but this is an opportunity for us to really dive into, into your research Um, I'll I'll summarize, so Dr. Gauthier uh, completed her PhD in um, investigating cerebral physiology and healthy aging using quantitative fMRI, so Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, uh, at the University of Montreal, and after her PhD, uh, Dr. Gauthier did a postdoctoral fellowship in neurophysics and neurology at the Max Planck Institute for Human Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig, uh, Germany. Um, She joined Concordia as an assistant professor in uh, 2014 and became associate professor in the Department of Physics in in 2019. Um, I'd like to point out also that uh, she holds the Henry J.M. Barnett New Investigator Award from the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada and, uh, extremely uh, importantly, I think, um, is the uh, Horstein chair holder of the... um, of cardiovascular imaging at the Montreal Heart Institute. Uh, So professor at Concordia in physics, uh, chair at the Heart Institute. You've done, uh, you've studied in biochemistry, in neurology, uh, neurological sciences. How, how How did, what is your trajectory? How did you end up in physics? Uh, going through all these various uh, permutations of scientific
2: inquiry. Uh, Tell us a bit about that, please. Um, Well, I started in biochemistry, and and, uh, my theory about this is my entire family is engineers, and I was trying to get as far away as engineering as I could, and then I slowly drifted back towards, you know, my roots. And so I uh, started in biochemistry, and then in my master's degree at McGill, also in biochemistry, But I actually found that uh, biochemistry was very, uh, it's very manual (laughs) Mm. (laughs) to say you have to, you know, manipulate little tubes and, you know, I'm kind of distracted and and often a little bit clumsy. So I would often have trouble with my experiments, spill it, you know, miss my timing. I don't know. I wasn't very good at it. And I had some friends who were doing imaging at the Montreal Neurological Institute and I would have lunch with them. And I thought, oh my God, these people, they look so happy doing what they do. And I want to do that, right? Right. And I think one of the reasons why they were so happy doing it is that imaging is a very new field, especially Mm. then. Um, And so it's very collaborative, right? And I think that's kind of what I I wanted, something that was very collaborative. And so I moved on to imaging and never looked back. And uh, and in imaging then I kind of did a lot of uh, more kind of technical development during my PhD and my postdoc, uh, which was the kind of physics aspect. And then did some application in physiology because that was kind of closer to my um, original interests in starting university. And then in the end, kind of combined them together, and uh, yeah, got hired at um, in physics to try to develop the kind of medical physics part of the, right. the program.
1: Yeah, because the the medical aspect and the. Uh... Basically, your study in, in lifestyle choices, yeah. uh, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, also, open doors to uh, to engage, mm-hmm. uh, so, so you're, you're you're involved with in Engage. You're also involved with the AI Institute, the yeah. Artificial Intelligence Institute. Um, I think it's the cluster on uh, artificial intelligence and and science. Um, could could you tell us? Um, I guess what, what is the fundamental focus? Uh, if you had to summarize, like the one the one theme, mm-hmm. the, the, the the you know Christmas dinner party, uh, w- w- one line description, and then we can uh, dig in.
2: Um. Yeah. So imaging is a very versatile yeah. tool, but it but it's often used in non quantitative ways, and I think the problem with that is that you can't compare different people that may have disease uh, together if you do that. And so really the focus of my research is to try to develop and use quantitative techniques using MRI to study aging disease lifestyle, mm-hmm. right? but really focusing on this quantitative uh, aspect of it.
1: Right, and the quantitative aspect is uh, part lab work, so controlled lab uh, experiments, but also I understand you also have students looking into uh, publicly available data,
2: yeah.
1: Um, how, how does that work? And, and how, how do these data sets compare and how do they complement each
2: other? Yeah. So, publicly available data sets uh, tend to be very large data sets, mm-hmm. but they often don't have a lot of quantitative information in them uh, because that those are much harder to acquire and often they require special manipulations and things like that. And then the data that we acquire in the lab tends to be in these more complex experiments, smaller samples, but more quantitative right mm-hmm. and, and usually students will kind of have two projects one of them working on these publicly available data sets where the numbers uh are, work for you and then in data that we acquire ourselves where really you don't have a lot of people but it's much more quantitative and they kind of get a test of, taste of both uh, types of data which i think are important for the future like these big data sets are, right. are definitely a big part of the future of science so it's so You know, it's important for them to learn how to work with that data as well.
1: Right. And are you expected to contribute your own data into those large data sets afterwards or do you keep those separate?
2: Yeah, those are separate. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, definitely open science is a is a really big, um, you know, direction in which everybody's pushing these days. And so, um, you know, I think there is an expectation that the data that we acquire will be available, um, you know, to the community in the future. I mean, we're not finishing, it, we're not finished acquiring it, but in the future to make it available to, uh, to other scientists, yeah. but, but those tend to be, um, separate things. They, they each have their own protocol, which is different. So they can't really be mixed together, but definitely, um, you know, it is expected now that scientists share their data with the scientific community.
1: Right. So let, let's, let's step back a, a tiny bit. And, um, so, so the, um, the data sets you're creating, the the, the, the uh, experiments you're, you're working on, the the, the various fMRI um, uh, captions essentially you're you're you're, you're capturing. Um, who who are you basically studying? Because you're you're looking at aging, mm-hmm. uh, you're looking at cardiovascular um, uh, issues, um, and, and um, you're also looking at lifestyle. So could you tell us a, a tiny bit? Who who are you measuring? What are you looking for? How how is the how is this done Mm -hmm. and are you looking across the lifespan or are you focusing on the older population?
2: Yeah. So my plan eventually is to have this type of data, this very quantitative data that not many people have on a very wide range of people across the lifestyle and different disease spectrums. Right. But it's difficult. It takes time. It takes a lot of money to do that. So basically we're kind of filling pieces of the puzzle as we go along. And right now we have three um, three studies going on, one of them on uh, coronary heart disease, one on long COVID, and one on uh, the menopause transition. Okay. And so, and each of these, for example, long COVID and uh, coronary artery disease, we have a, a disease, we have a, a patient population, but we always, always have a control population also, mm-hmm. right? So we're basically kind of filling the puzzle, both in terms of patients, but also always healthy people. And in many ways, I mean, the healthy people is kind of the database you want to grow the most because if you want to look at if subtle effects of lifestyle, uh, for example, and hormones or things like that, then you need quite a big number of people, right? So by kind of combining people from multiple studies, eventually we have this large data set that we can look at these effects in.
1: Right. And in terms of the uh, the population, I, I noticed in, in one of your many, many grants, uh, you were looking at uh, the difference also in... Uh, um, in men and women in, mm-hmm. in, in certain activity. Can you tell us about that? Like you've, yeah. you've noticed differences, right? Yes. Yeah.
2: So, so this is, um, so it, CHR, uh, has had, has pushed a lot in recent years to really get people to look at sex uh, and gender, but I think people are starting with sex mostly, uh, in much more detail than before. So, Uh, really CIHR has a a whole guideline on how to do sex and gender-based analysis. And it really involves kind of separating men and women, uh, well, males and females, really, and uh, studying those two populations separately, because the biology might be different in Mm -hmm. the two sexes, right, for many different reasons. And when we started doing this with our old data, we realized that a lot of Things that didn't make sense, relationships between, I don't know, arterial stiffness and brain health and things like that didn't make sense. And the reason why they didn't make sense is because we were combining everybody together. Mm. And once we separated males and females, we could see relationships that we had never seen before. Because Mm. if you're putting them together and you're taking uh, the uh, effect of sex into account in your statistics, what you're looking for is what is the mechanism in common between them, right? Right. And the mechanism in common between them might not actually be the interesting mechanism for development of disease. Sometimes the pathophysiological mechanism in each subgroup is actually the relevant one. And when we started dividing people, everything makes so much more sense all of a sudden that now we've really heavily invested in that to try to understand how aging happens in males and females, and and a lot related to exercise, recently especially. Okay, can you give us an example? Yeah, so for example, we've been um, looking at data um, on exercise intensity and how it relates to brain health in males and females in middle age and old age. And what we've been finding is that, for example, in males, to get a benefit in terms of brain health, uh, of exercise, um, males need um, relatively high ent- intensity of exercise. Low mm-hmm. exercise intensity doesn't really do that much for them. But if they do more high intensity exercise, they get more benefit. Females, on the other hand, are completely different. So vigorous exercise doesn't seem to make that much difference. But a total dose of exercise and especially walking is very beneficial. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the recommendations right now, which are really based on this kind of more intense exercise are really appropriate for males, but not so much for females. It's not that it's not beneficial right. for them, but really, I think guidelines towards uh, for for females in our data really show that it, it should be more geared towards uh, walking and total dose of exercise, no matter what type of exercise it is. Okay.
1: And is this through, true throughout their entire lifetimes, or is, is this a specific uh, yeah. population you're looking at?
2: So for males, it's true in, um, I mean, the the data only starts in people in their Mm thirties. So in males, it's true. It's true throughout that later years lifespan. So basically middle and older age. Mm -hmm. In females, on the other hand, it's mostly true in older females. So younger females who are not menopaused yet don't really seem to derive a benefit uh, from exercise in our data, though I really need to uh, emphasize that this seems to be due to the presence of estrogen. Mm -hmm. So probably what happens is estrogen, because it's so protective, basically means that you really don't see the effect of exercise right then, but it probably has a beneficial effect on later life, right? So basically um, estrogen would mask any effect of exercise while it's still there, but if you do exercise then in later life you would be healthier right but we don't see it right away until menopause basically right
1: and how how will we see this how do you measure this so so you work with imaging uh, yeah. brain and, and and vascular imaging uh, so you're looking at very specific moments yeah Um, How would you anticipate these benefits, uh, the estrogen-related benefits in in the long run?
2: Yeah, so probably it has to do with um, vascular structure, right? So we know that blood vessels become harder um, in aging. So basically, blood vessels in their walls, Mm -hmm. they have a protein that's called elastin. And elastin is called like that because it's basically like elastic. It can be stretched. And this is what makes... um, Uh, blood vessels compliant. So they can increase their, um, their diameter in response to a bolus of blood, basically that comes from the heart. And just like if you stretch an elastic many times, it'll start to be stiffer because the proteins inside that are elastic break. The -hmm. same thing happens with elastin. So as we have heartbeat throughout our lives, the elastin protein breaks down and it's not replaced. And so- The more we age, the more our vessels become stiff. And we know that um, exercise and uh, other you know positive lifestyle um, experiences will tend to make this process happen less. So there will be less breaking of these elastic proteins. And so the, the vessels stay healthier. And so it's probably something related to this or formation of plaques and vessels and things right. like that.
1: Well, as you describe this i can feel my own vessels uh, <laughs> hardening and thinking about uh, what we should be doing um I, I like to um understand who who your principal interlocutors are so you're working you're you're working in your lab but you're also working at really across different institutes engage mm-hmm. ai as we mentioned um and, and also with the um uh, with the hard institute uh, um and, and as well um who do you, who does your science speak to and how is it received? And I'd like to understand like that, that connection, basically.
2: Yeah, so most of my research so far has really been targeted at you know, basic science, in a sense mm-hmm. that we can understand mechanism of aging and disease, other scientists, um, and also clinicians. So a lot of the techniques that we're developing, uh, they're potential biomarkers, we call. Mm-hmm. So they're potential markers of a physiological change that could be kind of early in the disease process. So the idea is we develop these techniques, we make them accessible, and then you hope that a clinician, multiple clinicians, will adopt them into their own practice and acquire this data in their patients so that we can um, basically follow the development of disease and maybe either uh, help in diagnosis of disease or help in, in therapy. Because if it's a uh, a biomarker that is uh, sensitive to changes in lifestyle or uh, drugs, for example, then we can use it to follow the course of uh, therapy. So, so that's the main, the, those, the main stakeholders. And then this exercise branch that we're exploring now um, also has policy implications, right. as I mentioned, because uh, a lot of what we're finding is that basically the guidelines that exist um, they're very broad and there's nothing wrong with them in the sense that if you follow them, for sure you will be healthier. But that there may be benefits in terms of ad- adoption and people actually following these guidelines. If mm. they were made more appropriate and different for different age groups or different sexes or genders. Right. Right. You're, so you're in physics, you're in engage.
1: But you're also a shareholder at the mm-hmm. Montreal Heart Institute. What does this mean, and and what does this give you in terms of access, resources? Does uh, it bring you out of Concordia, or does yeah. it bring
2: resources here? So, I mean, it's mostly what it gives me is, um, I mean, funds to do research, which mm-hmm. is always nice but also access to patients because, okay. you know, Concordia doesn't have a medical school. So access to patients is a little bit more complicated here. And and really because I'm looking at vascular metabolic health and aging, um, and, and we're basically trying to develop these biomarkers, The you know, the way this is done usually is we start with disease populations to see if our biomarkers can pick up the effect of disease. And then, you know, we can dial back the disease basically towards Mm -hmm. a normal population to see how much of the, you know, the variance in the population we can pick up. So, but to be able to do this process of figuring out how sensitive our biomarkers are to, um, relevant physiology and the development of disease, we need patients, Hmm. right? And those patients are at the Heart Institute, so that allows me to have access to them.
1: And concretely, what does this mean? Do you spend uh, X number of days per week at the Heart Institute? Uh, Do you you ask permission for a patient to come come over and look at their fmri or yeah i trying to understand
2: how you yeah this. So basically um it means i spend i spend some time uh, every week there yeah. and yeah. but my students spend a lot more time there okay. because they're the ones who do the data acquisition and right. all that and so uh, a lot of our projects not all of them but a lot of our projects take place there so that's mm-hmm. where we do all the data acquisition and then we have all our computers and all our uh, data analysis infrastructure at the physics uh, department and then so they kind of go back and forth mm. which you know poor them because those two are kind yeah. of at the other each end of the city there right. and so yeah they go do data acquisition a few times a week at the heart institute and then they come back to analyze the data at concordia basically
1: Right. And is it helpful to be on, on site at the hospital to have a sense of who it is, you're, 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 whose data you're looking at? Uh, is that taken into account in the analysis or, or do you keep that absolutely separate?
2: Um, I mean, I think the, the presence there is good for, I mean, aside from that's where we analyze the mm-hmm. data, I think it's also a community that's very, right. um, you know, knowledgeable in terms of vascular disease and Mm -hmm. physiology of you know vascular physiology and all that so we get a lot of kind of scientific effervescence from being there right right and then um but definitely when we try to analyze the data um you know it's very important not to be biased when Mm -hmm. we analyze the data because we always have expectations about what we want to find okay right Um, you know what you want in that nature, nature paper, you know? Right. So I think it's really important not to think too much about who you're analyzing when you're mm-hmm. analyzing the data because you don't want to be biased, right. um, you know? Oh, you know, I think that's an artifact in this data because, you know, it really doesn't go in the direction I expect. So it must be something wrong with my data, right? right. Things like that. Yeah. So it's really important, I think, to keep... Um, as unbiased a view of the data as possible. Mm-hmm.
1: And how, how closely do you work with the uh, uh, treating doctors, for instance, on site? Uh, are they are they involved in? pointing out certain interesting cases? Uh, Do do they want some feedback on what you found pretty quickly or is it pretty hands-off?
2: Well, so they help us with recruitment. So usually, especially for example, the coronary artery disease patients that we're doing now. So we, we get them from doctors who are treating them at the Montreal Heart Institute. So we'll, you know, go through their patient files. I mean, my students do this. I don't do this. And, uh, you know, sit with the treating physician to, you know, see if they fit our criteria. If we think they would be a Good case for us, um, and then of course once it's time to write the papers and write the grants, then we discuss with the with the doctors there to make sure that because you know as somebody who has been more involved, let's say in the technical development, I know a lot more about MR physics than about vascular physiology. In the end, um, you know, we really need to make sure that we talk with the doctors to. Ensure that the things we're trying to measure and the questions we're trying to ask are the right ones, right? Because we always have our own ideas about this. But if you're not working with the patients, you you know might be completely off base, right? right. So it's important to always have that dialogue with the with the um, uh, clinical mm-hmm. people to make sure that we're going in the right direction. Right,
1: and you've got your students on site uh, doing the. Uh basically the MRIs, are working with the Mm -hmm. uh, MRI staff and and analyzing the the data. So you've had six PhD students in the past uh, five years, two master's students, two postdocs, so that's a it's a healthy lab. I uh-huh. uh, published twenty-three journal articles in the past five years, twenty-seven conference publications. I I can imagine the, the constant effervescence, uh, just like so many things to to, to analyze and understand and, and publish. Um, what do what do your students bring in this process? I'd like to, to hear about some of their insights and thoughts as, as as you're working with them, and how have you been surprised, for instance?
2: Yeah, no, I think I mean first of all, working with the students is the best part of this job Um, and they I mean I personally don't think a single individual is creative enough to really figure out those scientific questions Mm -hmm. right it really has to be a group effort where everybody brings their own ideas and their own interest to the question because there's an infinite number of questions you could ask an infinite number of things you could do right and so it's always a mixture I'm not a very uh top person right. and you know I always try to make sure that the student is basically driving the question and I try to set some parameters of course in terms of feasibility but but really it's about you know a dialogue with the student in trying to figure out what we're going to ask as a question how we're going to do it and I think you know they're an amazing source of scientific creativity mm-hmm. and you know that's the best part of this.
1: Are there any examples that come to mind that uh, that you'd like to talk, tell us about?
2: Um, yeah, so I think I mean to go back to this exercise study since mm-hmm. I've already talked about yeah. talked about it. So um, this is a poor student who's had uh, she's graduated now. And she did amazing things, but basically everything I tried to, um, set up for her, it just never worked out. You know, the first project, we like ran out of money because, Mm. you know, we didn't have, um, the recruitment wasn't working well. And then she was supposed to do something else and a pandemic happened. And so she was very, very unlucky. And so she really had to spend a lot of time kind of bootstrapping her PhD in many ways. And she's the one who really came up with the idea of, you know, taking these, of exercise questionnaires and and really trying to systematically um, figure out how you could quantify in terms of metabolic equivalent and type of exercise, uh, how you could quantify exercise uh, from these questionnaires, which, you know, don't give you directly that information and then kind of relating that to brain health and hormones. And, you know, I, I didn't. I mean, I told her about this data set, but but Mm -hmm. she's basically the one who drove the ideas, right? And really came up with how we could look at this exercise question in a way that I could never have done because I actually don't really know anything about exercise.
1: Right, that's interesting. And and was there a temptation then to sort of reach out to applied physiology uh, professors, for instance, or other folks getting engaged? Does that uh, necessarily open up those conversations?
2: Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, I think, I mean, this is a first step. Like mm-hmm. we are just, uh, um, you know, working on this data set now, but for me, definitely it opens up a lot of questions that can lead to very interesting collaborations. So for right. example, um, I'm um, starting this collaboration with uh, Marta Kirsten-Urtel mm-hmm. in uh, engineering to really try to use uh, uh, apps to uh, develop apps to quantify um activity and lifestyle a little bit better, and then to use AI to try to look at these big data sets and kind of collect our own data sets uh, for this, right, in a way that, you know, I wouldn't have thought before if we didn't have this project in collaboration with my student,
1: Right. And what, what is, um, what are you hoping for in terms of that collaboration with the AI Institute? What, what is the, what are the potentialities uh, for your research?
2: Yeah, so I think these are very complex questions, right? These lifestyle. There's mm-hmm. so many facets to lifestyle, and I think standard statistical analyses can diff- can can. It's difficult to capture what's actually happening because you have your a priori ideas and perhaps biases about what you're expecting to see, yeah. right? And you're you're trying to to you know fit extremely complex data into relatively simple statistical model that you can come up with as Mm -hmm. a human person, Mm -hmm. right? And I think AI has a lot of potential in kind of making us think about these extremely complex data in new ways by extracting patterns that we would have never from a priori information come up with. Right. Right. So it's it, it's an I think AI is an amazing tool for hypothesis generation. OK, basically. Right.
1: Assuming the data, the data is properly. Uh, yes, of uh, course. You know, <laughs> of course. No, no. Data
2: curation is, yeah. you know, a whole difficult thing to do. But but if right. you do get good data, you have enough of it. Then I think AI has amazing potential for generating hypotheses that we would have probably come up with eventually but who knows how long it would take us to right. get there.
1: So it's it's accelerating the process. It's giving yeah. us
2: better tools. Exactly. And and how do we how do we uh, integrate those those hypotheses? Yeah, I think we don't have a good solution to okay. that yet. I think we're just scratching the surface of what AI can do, but but basically I think what AI can do at least the way I see it is you know help us extract these complex patterns out of the data that are completely based on the data not on any a priori idea that we had about the data mm-hmm. and then and then we can look at those try to see if we can use those patterns that we've extracted to generate new hypotheses about what the physiological process is and mm-hmm. then we can go and find our very quantitative you know targeted data to test that new hypothesis about the data
1: this is exciting. So you've been at Concordia for nine years, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the trajectory is absolutely astounding. Um, and just just coming back to, uh, um, to, to to your progression from biochemistry to uh, uh, the neurosciences, into physics, and looping into AI, and, and, and touching it, touching upon uh, uh, cardiovascular and, and um, uh, cerebral me- metabolic imaging. Um, it's, it seems like the, there's so many possibilities right now, and I can I can see you involved on so many fronts. Um, what do you What do you imagine for the next nine years? How, how do you see yourself? Where do you see yourself going? And what would you love uh, to do,
2: especially? Well, first of all, I would need an army of students. <laughs> army of students, <laughs> and I think really what I'm interested in is trying to really go into these. Um, yeah, this direction of trying to understand lifestyle in this very kind of holistic fashion, right Because I think this very reductionist approach that we've used so far towards understanding lifestyle, I don't think it can work. I think lifestyle has extremely complex uh, effects on you know every aspect of the body and mental health, and therefore we're going to need very different tools than what we've used in the past to mm. try to understand lifestyle. And to be able to do that, we need many more types of data that we've had before. We need, you know, new analysis tools. We need, um, you know, yeah, mostly those two things, I guess. And, and, you know, that's kind of where I want to try to go is to really explore how we can understand the the complexity of it in, you know, using all these new tools, these new data sets, all these new things that are you know, really starting to emerge now, right? These very large consortia that have these very large data sets, our mm-hmm. own, you know, very quantitative data, uh, yeah, AI and, you know, multi, uh, multivariate analysis, which is also, you know, developing really quickly. Right. to Really try to understand, you know, how lifestyle in all its complexity can affect, uh, can, can, you know, change brain health you all its complexity, right? right? It's two very complex things, kind of, you know, interacting together. And it's very hard to capture that.
1: And you've cautioned us uh, about uh, taking into account uh, sex and gender, for yes. instance. the Different moments exactly. Of life. Exactly. Uh, uh, when you When you talk about lifestyle, so I'm, yes. I'm coming from the humanities and social sciences, so I, I, I might have a different uh, understanding of what you mean. What do you mean by lifestyle data?
2: Yeah. So lifestyle data um, can be. Almost anything that you know relates to how a person lives their life, but I think in its most simple form, in in uh, you know life sciences, what we're mostly talking about is things like uh, exercise, diet, sleep. Um, I mean, occupation also has a big uh, a big impact generally. Um, so these kind of aspects, right? And and it's actually really hard to quantify them. So things like exercise, to some extent, we know how to quantify that. But how about sedentary behavior? Mm-hmm. Right, That's mm-hmm. been a really expanding topic, but we don't actually have a good way of measuring that. People are not very good at knowing how long they've been sitting. And, you know, does it matter if it's, you know, 10 hours in a row or five and five? Uh, you know, do you do it every day, every other day? Right. Um, you know, do you... All of these things about sedentary behavior, mm-hmm. we don't really know how to quantify that. But the even the tip of the iceberg that we can see shows us that it has a huge impact, right? right. But we don't actually know how to quantify it. And things like now that everybody has a smart watch and a cell right. phone, we can probably use that data to Ten quantify it steps. better. Yeah. But but right like right now the apps quantify activity not sedentary behavior right right so we would need a a way of changing these apps to actually quantify sedentary behavior as well right because Mm -hmm. probably that also has an impact right and then diet do you do you do questionnaires to people you get them to take pictures of it and you analyze it offline using AI right there's many different things that we need to able to quantify to really understand what a person's lifestyle is and right now you know aside from physical activity and even that mm-hmm. right we don't have a lot
1: right and are we being sedentary here now oh definitely uh, te- <laughs> te- technically but we're also yeah. engaged in conversation that's true. our you know our, our, our brains yeah. are, are, are imaging up <laughs> yes um is is the uh, is, is the lifestyle of a professor uh, a healthy one uh, given given what you've been looking at
2: that's a good question i think i mean it's you know, a desk job often. So maybe Mm -hmm. not that part. On the other hand, I think, you know, there's a lot of data on how um, being stimulated, always doing something that takes you out of your comfort zone, that's really good for your brain. And if there's, if there's one thing that really keeps you out of your comfort zone is working with students who, you know, always, you know, they're in their kind of, I don't know, brain expansion, Mm -hmm. you know, Uh, phase of life where they're always trying something new and they're interested in lots of things and they can learn things you've never learned about and and that keeps you out of your comfort zone and that for sure is good for you. Right. So there's
1: intellectual stimulation. Yeah. Hyper-stimulation for for the most
2: part, but uh, sedentary uh, uh, physical uh, existence. Probably right. teaching is good for you. You know, yeah, you're right. standing yep. and you're teaching. So that part, I would think, is good yeah. for you. Yeah, so a mixed bag, as usual. Okay. It's a bit stressful, you know. Yeah. So maybe not that.
1: <laughs> what gets you up in the morning in terms of research?
2: You know, yeah, apart, aside from my kids waking me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so,
1: so that would be the first thing. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So think, after that, yeah. You know, me, I think I'm an understanding junkie. You know, I like what really gets me up in the morning is there's so many things I'd like to understand, Mm -hmm. right? It's never ending. And, you know, I'm just, and not only science, anything. I just, Mm -hmm. I really love to understand how things work and that's what gets me up in the morning. Right. It's just like a whole day to figure things out.
1: Nice. And that's, uh, I'm sure that's very contagious uh, enthusiasm as well. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, Are there, uh, are there topics that you, um, We'd love to explore some researchers maybe uh, that maybe you heard about, or, or streams of research that you're too shy to sort of uh, yeah. approach. But can you tell
2: us about that? So there's a there's a huge thing these days that uh, people are starting to develop um, imaging techniques for, and that's glymphatic um, flow. So mm-hmm. we know that you know the blood circulates in the um, in the vessels, but there's also uh, liquid outside the cells and outside the vessels. Mm-hmm. And we're now starting to understand that this liquid um, often is used in detoxifying the brain, right? Things Mm -hmm. like those proteins that cause Alzheimer's disease. We know that they actually accumulate in this extracellular fluid and it needs to be drained. And that whole drainage system is so slow that for many, many years, we didn't know if it existed or not. Um, And now we're starting to be able to image that. And to me, that's that's absolutely fascinating. I'd love to be able to get into that, but uh, I haven't there yet.
1: Right. So this is brand new. Yes. This is, uh, yeah, terribly exciting.
2: Yes. Uh, and
1: and who, who would your interlocutors be there? Um, in, in what field are they working And How how might you uh, poke uh, poke in and have a look and, and collaborate with them?
2: Yeah, so I think there's the people who develop those techniques. I don't mm-hmm. think I would develop my own, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of the other researchers who work in imaging. And then, you know, I think a lot of the... the Topics that are related to this lymphatic flow are some certain diseases like Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. and then sleep. So what we know is that sleep is when this happens, this flow and this detoxifying, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think sleep is an incredibly important part of lifestyle also. So, you know, that would kind of involve going more into the um, figuring out sleep and how it works and how it interacts with all these other aspects of health and lifestyle to be able to, you know, promote health right um. hey, and, and
1: we, we know how many uh how many people today brag about how little sleep they they have uh, it's a sort of measure of success or importance mm-hmm. and so we might want to reconsider that uh you've worked with uh pre-alzheimer's uh yes. patients as well right um so, so do you see this this study of the, the detoxifying uh, aspect of uh of the lymphatic system as, as something uh potentially interesting is it complementary to what you've been doing
2: yeah exactly i think it's just another piece of that puzzle of how everything fits together right i've been working a lot on vascular health and Mm -hmm. and there's also indication that the way this flow in the lymphatic system works is because every time there's a cardiac pulsation it basically pushes the liquid a little bit and that's what helps to create this flow inside the brain right so it it's all related together and that's what's amazing about biology incredibly complex everything fits together yeah. in this very messy way
0: yeah
2: uh, and and that's what i like about it is try to understand the, the whole messiness and complexity of it
1: and you're you're leading you're leading us through this uh complexity uh, i i don't think it's all that messy the way you you present it it's a very coherent uh, enthusiastic approach to trying to understand uh, overall systems um thank you so much for this, uh, this conversation.
2: Um, thank you. It's I, always I,
1: so much fun to talk about these things. I, I feel so much smarter now having, uh, having listened to you and uh, very keen to learn more. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you have an idea for a podcast, please let us know. You can contact us by email at info.4 at concordia.ca or find us on social media at cu4thspace. All social media is managed by Jacqueline Wexler. This episode of the Fourth Space Podcast is hosted by me, Maximus Delmar, and produced by Anna Voklavek and Douglas Moffat. Editing by myself, Douglas Moffat, and Chanel Lees-Marshall. Additional thanks to Supercontinent for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening.